Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 238. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. you pray with me as we turn to God's word now? Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, would you lift up in our sight the true and better David? We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, in, in sixth grade, I played my first year of football. And I lived in Leeds at the time, but I actually drove to Cabo Heights. I played my first year of football just down the road at Cabo Heights Elementary School. I uh, practiced in the backfield there. 
Uh, I, I did that because there was a guy in the very, very small circle of like Jefferson County Pee Wee football. He was legendary, which is a really small circle of people. And, and I wanted to play for Coach Jackson. Coach Jackson is one of the most intense people I've ever met. We did two-a-days as sixth graders, which uh, I don't think my high school team today does two-a-days anymore. So he was he was a pretty tough guy. And he, he made teams do really well. Uh, the year before I started, the team was undefeated. We were expected to do the same thing. And uh, about mid-season, we, we end up losing a pretty close game. Now, to be, to be very clear, this was my first year playing football. There are like three tiers. Okay, there's starters. They're good. There's second team. They're like, the starters need a break. We'll put them in. And then there's like, we're up by 28. Let's give the guys some playing time. That's me. Okay, put me down here. Okay, as a sixth grader. So at the end of this game, the, the coach, Coach Jackson, gives this rousing, intense speech because he is, frankly, a little frustrated because he thought we didn't play very well. He's especially frustrated, though, because he thinks people don't care that we lost and that, that they don't care we didn't play well. So he's saying something like, I can just see it on all of your faces. You're not even bothered that we lost. And then something really Strange and a little terrifying happened because he pointed at me and said, I want you all to look at Ryan. I want you to look in his eyes. He would have given anything to be out there tonight. I can see it in his eyes. Now, I I rode home with my dad that night and honestly felt pretty proud of myself, but I'm just going to confess something to you here that I never told my dad. I never told Coach Jackson, but I'll tell you now. I have no idea what Coach Jackson saw in my eyes. I was not good. We would have lost worse if I were in the game. I was probably hungry or maybe thinking about homework. But he was convinced there was something he saw that I was the man for the hour. It's funny, really, how sometimes we think, we can think, we see with such clarity. But even when we are sometimes convinced that we are right, We can be shown that we're actually seeing with faulty sight. We've seen that really happen multiple times throughout this book in 1 Samuel, right? Just think back to some of the instances where you see faulty sight on display. So think of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Philistines are coming and all of Israel says, you know what? You know what makes sense here? We got this box. God says he dwells there. Let's take that and we'll probably win. Makes intuitive sense. And they lose terribly. You can go look at Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Rich, handsome, tall. He's the guy. And apparently being rich, tall, and handsome doesn't qualify you to be a very good king or a godly man. And today, this kind of lesson that we've seen throughout the book, that we see sometimes today, this this is the lesson that takes center stage. So this is the main point of this first half in 1 Samuel 16. It's there on your note sheet. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Trust God's perfect vision and not your faulty sight. Don't be fooled. Trust God's perfect vision and not your faulty sight. As we walk through the the passage, the outline's going to be really simple. We're just going to walk through and pause briefly to look at three things. We're going to see our faulty sight on display. We'll see God's perfect vision. And then we're going to see specifically how that plays out. The best example of that playing out in God's chosen king.
And my prayer this week is that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Paul prays for the Ephesian church. That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That we may see as God sees. And that we would rejoice in his chosen king. Now, just to back up, give you the context, if you weren't here with us last week, when we get to 1 Samuel 16, you may have been tracking for a while, and Saul has been and still is at this point the king over Israel. He was the king for several years. But last week, in chapter 15, we saw the tragedy that that Saul is rejected as the king over Israel. Remember the, the very last scene of the chapter. If you have your Bible open, you can just see the very last couple of verses, 34 and 35. Samuel and the word of the Lord with him walk off in one direction. Saul, the rejected king, walks off in another. And the text says they never meet again. And that, that's distinctive of Saul's kingship. The rest of this book, Saul looks like a man who has not heard from the Lord over and over and over. But we did say that there is still hope. Remember back in chapter 13, the first time Saul is warned and said that your kingdom is not going to continue. Maybe you can continue to be a good king, but you're not going to have a Saul dynasty. But Samuel, through the word of the Lord, told them that God was providing another man. One who would be chosen, not according to the people's standards of what they think and what they're looking for, but according to God's own heart. And so in verse 1 of our passage in chapter 16 this morning, we see this kind of start setting into order, right? Verse 1, the Lord tells Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this task, that sounds pretty simple. Go take horn of oil, go anoint. It's not that simple. Uh, we, thankfully, live in a place where the passing of power from one person to the next is enshrined in our constitution. Not so in the ancient world. You have a bigger army, somebody else wants to be the king, you just kind of kill them. That's what happens. And so Samuel thinks, if I knows, if I go to anoint another person king, Saul, if he hears about this, he's not going to be very happy and he will kill me. So the Lord gives Samuel uh, a plausible explanation for his journey down to Bethlehem. There in verse 2, take a heifer with you. Say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. That's that's where the story is going. We've already been told at the very front where we're headed. And the people of Bethlehem, they see Samuel coming down the road and they don't quite know what to do. Uh, maybe you can sympathize with this. In, in 2014, when Laura and I moved back to Chicago, back to Birmingham from Chicago, uh, we were leading a small group at our church and trying to get to know people. So we invited people over to our home pretty frequently. And so we invited uh, a single woman over to our home to have dinner. And we were thinking this is a great chance to get to know her. There was a sermon the week before on church discipline. She came to our home thinking she was maybe going to be ambushed. So this is what's happening. This is, this is what's happening. Samuel's coming and they think, are you, what, what's happening? You coming peaceably or are you coming with the word of the Lord to bring the thunder? And thankfully Samuel says, I'm coming to make a sacrifice here that he comes peaceably. And he commands all the town and especially, specifically, Jesse and his sons to consecrate themselves, to be made 
holy, to be clean. And so we're told in verse 6 that the people do come. And Samuel looks upon Eliab, the, the oldest son of Jesse. And here's Samuel's thought. It's there in the text. Surely, surely, this, the Lord's anointed, is before him. This is like Samuel's, I can see it in his eyes kind of moment. He's got it pegged. This guy has the stuff. But then look at verse 7. This is the key verse for this passage and a key verse in the book as a whole. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If you're someone who writes in your Bible, this is one of those underline, highlight kind of verses. This is key for this whole book. Because in this little sentence, this last sentence, God exposes to Samuel and to us our faulty sight. Uh, kids, and, and this probably applies to some adults too, but kids, when, when you go, this, I remember this as a, as a kid going to my birthday party or Christmas. There's a line of packages or something that you're ready to open. And there's one that's like big and it's got a bow on it and it looks beautiful. That's like how my wife wraps gifts. And then there's one that's like in a very small little package that's wrapped in newspaper, which is how I usually wrap my gifts. There's one of those that you're looking forward to opening because you think there's thought and attention given to it. And there's one that you're like, I don't know if I really, really want that. Right? You want the thing that looks really good. You think that's where all the stuff is going to be. And sometimes it may be right. I've also, Laura, one Christmas opened a package that looked beautiful and inside there was nothing in it because my mom just put an empty box under the tree and forgot that there wasn't anything in it. How disappointing. Then you open a small gift and it's the money that you would like to use. We can be easily deceived, even, even thinking through something as simple as gifts and what's in there. But even adults, all of us, are prone to judge by appearances. Right, we have a saying, don't judge a book by its cover, even though we're always tempted to do that when you walk through your favorite bookstore or browse on Amazon. We judge public political candidates by their charisma, maybe, or potential spouses by their looks. Unless we think that's something that people out there do. Like that's a problem that Saul has. Maybe the people of Israel writ large. That's something they struggle with. Who is it in this text that is looking through faulty sight? It's Samuel. It's the one who's seen Saul look so good and be so bad. We, church, need to learn this lesson. There, there's a social media, pretty well-known social media account that started kind of as a joke where a, a guy would take a picture of uh, so-called celebrity pastors, somebody who, who posts their own pictures on social media, and he would put up that picture and then say, here's the cost of his outfit. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having maybe an expensive pair of shoes. Don't go home and say, I've got to get rid of everything over a certain dollar amount. It's maybe a little more disconcerting when you go through and tally up tens of thousands of dollars spent on appearances. And it's easy. It's easy, right, to slowly shift 
our sight from asking what pleases God to what looks good, what impresses people. And we can so easily be impressed by those things. And I honestly, I I hesitate even to bring up maybe an example of celebrity preachers because if you don't know, I am not a celebrity preacher. And this is a very uh, normal church. Praise God for a normal church. But we, we can't just say, again, it's those people out there. We, too, brothers and sisters in the suburbs of Birmingham can be prone to this same kind of blindness, to being impressed by the things that look so good on the outside and paying little attention to what God sees. How many times have you been led astray to think if things are good on the outside, they're good on the inside? Maybe even harder, the thing that I've wrestled with some and I, is, is that we can actually take advantage of this as well. Not only can we be fooled, but we can intentionally start trying to fool other people. We can count on their faulty sight looking at me. and Say, if I clean up the things on the outside, if I dress up, if I polish my social media account, my public kind of persona, then maybe think, people will think that I'm acceptable as well. And friends, if, if that's the kind of life that you've been living, trying to make everything clean and shiny on the outside, aren't you tired? That is a tiring way of living. More than that, it's, it's a losing game because we can fool people for a moment. You can trick me to thinking things are great on the outside. Or, or you may have been fooled looking at others before. But this is where the second point of the sermon, we should be thankful. We should be thankful and even chastened because we follow a God who has perfect clarity, perfect vision. God sees past our personas. He sees past our well-manicured lawns, our very clean houses. He sees to the heart. And for those who use this in a way to intentionally try to hide and say, if I look good out here, then I don't have to worry about what's inside. We, are, take, we should take this as a sober warning. God sees the heart. Or, or, or as the author of Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friend, your, your appearance can fool a lot of people. You can trick even the people closest to you for a while. But you will never fool the Lord. He created you. And He sees you. And He knows you. And if you're, you may be left wondering, okay, that's great. God sees everything. He knows all the stuff. He has perfect vision. How does that help me? I want, I actually want to be discerning. I want to be able to see and discern as God would have me. But how can I access his vision if I have faulty sight? Go back to the text. What happens to Samuel? The the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. The Lord speaks and corrects his vision and says, you're looking at it this way, but let me tell you the right way to look. 
And actually, that's the same way that it happens for us today. Not maybe in the audible voice of God coming to you, but through God's word. Think about this. So, so we just read in Hebrews 4.13 that God sees all things. I think the verse right before that, Hebrews 4.12, actually is helping us see how we have access to that. How we see that. Listen at Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And listen to this, discerning, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book, God's word to you and to me, is how we line up with his vision. If you want to see with his clarity, we should give ourselves to this. It's one reason why, I hope when you leave this morning, if you leave and say, man, there was a lot of Bible in that, we take that as a very great compliment. We hope our service is bathed in scripture from the songs we sing to the prayers we pray to the scripture we just read for your hearing and for our hearing. We want to sit under God's word. We want to encourage you to do that in your homes, in your private time with the Lord. And we want to do that here as a church. That is our call. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, one by one, so that you're not just hearing, here's what Ryan thinks, but here's what we think God's word is saying. Even that little main idea that I try to give most weeks and try to make clear there, that's there so you can check me. I hope it's memorable. But if I'm wrong, you do me a service and our church a service by telling me. That's there because we want to see God's vision and not with ours. And brothers and sisters, this book gives us God's vision for what is true and beautiful. And it is. It is true and beautiful. But that does not mean that God's vision is always easy. Sometimes following God's vision is really hard is very difficult and you may know that when you've run across something in your own life that you say i want to go in this direction and i know that god's word is telling me that i can't or that i shouldn't and you're faced with a question whose sight am i going to believe whose vision am i going to follow friends god's god's vision what he says is right and good is always better. It, it may be hard. And I would be lying to you if I said that it's just always easy. But I'm not lying when I tell you that it's better. Sometimes God's vision will, will tell a man who maybe aspires to lead in a church, to do great things, to want to be an elder, even something that we're praying for as a church. Sometimes God will tell a man who has all the good-looking things on the outside, but who has sin in his life that only he knows about. I will tell that man, no. It's better, though. It may be really hard, but it is better to expose sin to the light than to walk in the applause of men. God sometimes tells... Uh, there, there, are, there are times when a single sister who finally has a... A man who is interested in her, who shows her affection that he, she is excited for, but, but she knows that this man is not a Christian and she's faced with, what do I do? 
God's vision tells us that it is better, even if hard, to follow him. To be prepared as a bride before a loving husband in eternity than to enjoy the pleasures of this earth. If I could this week, I just want to remind us that God's vision helps us see sometimes with clarity, even in the midst of our grief. In our grief, our faulty sight can tell us frequently that we're alone. That surely God is not present in such a circumstance like this. But God's perfect vision tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. And so it's, it's hard. We may never know in this life why such grief presses in on us. We're not promised those kinds of, kind of answers, but it's better. It is better, brother and sister, to walk with God no matter where he leads you. Even if it is through the valley of the shadow of death and he is with you, it is better to walk with him than to walk off alone in ease and comfort. Brothers and sisters, friends, as long as we are alive, we will have to be constantly making vision corrections. We will constantly have to remind ourselves that God's sight, God's vision, what he desires is best. And that's one of the beautiful benefits of living in a local church, is that we will need the help of one another to do that as well. To walk faithfully with the Lord. Don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Trust God's perfect vision. Now, to to make that lesson especially clear for Samuel in this chapter, back to chapter 16, it's like he tells, you know, the Lord tells Samuel, here's here's what I'm teaching you in some ways. Don't look at the outward appearance. Look on the heart. The Lord looks there. And then, like, over and over, there's this object lesson. It's not the first son, it's not the second son, it's not the third, all the way through seven sons that walk before Samuel. And the Lord over and over says, none of them, none of them are the chosen king. And so then in verse 11, this is what Samuel says to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. As we kind of think about what it means to follow God's vision, to trust in his vision, there are a hundred examples. I'd encourage you even think about places where you're tempted to look through your vision and not trust God's vision. You can think of dozens of those. But the ultimate example of where we should follow God's vision and where we are tempted not to follow God's vision is here in his chosen king. Have you, have you heard... Uh, The nickname, I'm sorry, I'm using a lot of football illustrations, and I just realized that today. So if you're not in football, I'll try better next week. Have you ever heard the name Mr. Irrelevant? Mr. Irrelevant is not a nickname you really want. I guess it's a, it's, it's the nickname given to the last player selected in the NFL draft every year. 
And, and as it says, it's, it's kind of a name you want because it meant you were selected to play in the NFL. Great. Huge. But being called Mr. Irrelevant kind of lets you know what your future holds for you. You are likely not to make the team. You, uh, if you make the team, you're probably bound for a very short career where you will sit on the sidelines. And this youngest son of Jesse here is Mr. Irrelevant. In Jesse's mind, the possibility that this youngest son could be the one, the chosen king, is so remote that he's like, don't even bother. Just stay out there. Watch the sheep. Uh, Even notice how the narrator kind of builds some of this. Do you notice in verse 11 what Jesse calls his son? The youngest. Doesn't even have a name. It's like he got through all seven. It was just like, there's there's an eighth one. He's the youngest. I can't remember, but he's just out there with the sheep. But it's this son, this son, David, who's finally mentioned in verse 13. He is the one. He is the future anointed king. And the spirit rushes upon him, empowering him, showing that he is the one who will deliver Israel from that day forward. Now, David was a surprising choice as king. Uh, you may see in the, the text, you may be confused, I just want to point out, the text does say he's handsome. That's, don't be, that feels like it goes against everything we've just said. Just know being handsome does not qualify you or disqualify you for being king. Just an observation of David's appearance. And we know that this is not, this is not something that's a prerequisite for kingship because we see much later more kings that come of whom there is no mention of their beauty and their appearance to the eyes. And actually we know this most specifically because we're told that there's a descendant, a future king coming for whom it's not that he is beautiful, ruddy, handsome. We're actually told he is almost the exact opposite. Like that's what Isaiah 53 tells us. This servant of the Lord has no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That, that is, in a nutshell, our faulty sight on full display. This servant of the Lord that we look upon with the eyes of the world is nothing to behold. His appearance is such that we don't want to see him. The emotional grief that he has is such that we just say, I don't even want to be around him. His physical pain is such that people look at him and say, he is suffering under God's punishment for his own crimes. But what's the lesson that we learned in 1 Samuel? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't trust in looking at this servant. Don't trust your sight. But trust God's perfect vision. And in God's perfect vision, we see that this servant is not suffering under condemnation for his own crimes. When we look at him, when the eyes of the world look at him, they see one who is smitten and stricken by God. Verse 5 says he was pierced 
for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God shows us that this servant who is looked upon and who is thought to be suffering for his own sin, he is suffering for our transgressions and not his. His appearance may say he is rejected by God, but he is instead chosen and precious. Now, in Isaiah 53, this this servant is unnamed. And there will go like hundreds of years after this time when people will be looking for this kind of servant. They'll be saying, we want the Messiah. And from this time, when you see this lesson of look to one this way, all the way till the time of the New Testament, people again forgot the lesson. They forgot that they were looking not for one who looks like he has all the qualifications, who is great on the outside. They were to trust God's sight and his choice. And so when there is this supposed illegitimate son of a carpenter from a backwater town called Nazareth who comes on the scene, people scoff. Right? Do you remember Nathaniel? This is in the book of John. Nathaniel hears about Jesus and his first words are, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like that hillbilly town on the other side of the tracks, there's nothing good that comes from there. The Jewish leaders of the day, they are constantly rejecting Jesus based on what he's doing, what they see in him. And Jesus says that that should be expected because the stone that the builders rejected is the one that is now the cornerstone. All the crowds who are looking for the Messiah, they shout when Jesus comes into the city, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They they think that this king is coming to take over. That he's going to clean house. They want a king like the nations all around them. Just like we read in 1 Samuel 8. And then when they find out that this king is not the conquering hero that they want, the shouts change from Hosanna to crucify him. This despised, unlovely one is not the Messiah that we looked for. It's not the Messiah that we asked for. But Jesus is the anointed king who is chosen by God in his perfect sight. He's born, but not in a comfortable palace, but in an itchy stable. He he has a kingdom, but it's not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom that begins when he creates it and goes to eternity. He wears a crown, not a crown of gold and costly Jews, but of twisted thorns that are shoved on his head. And he reigns, and in his enthronement ceremony, he is not waltzing through Westminster Abbey. His enthronement ceremony is being lifted up on a cross, surrounded by two thieves. He dies not as a conquering war hero, but as a condemned criminal. And throughout his life, and even, even today, our faulty vision constantly cries out, He is stricken, smitten, afflicted. And God looks on him 
all the while and says, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And amidst all the misunderstanding, all the people looking on this king, everybody in the gospels who has faulty sight and they keep missing it, God does something miraculous and he starts to open people's eyes to see clearly. Do you remember what happens at the cross? Like all the people that you would expect to see that this is the one, the religious leaders, like they're the ones who helped crucify him. The disciples, the people who've supported him for years, they're, they're the ones who have kind of run away. They are not there. And then at the foot of the cross, even at the very end, one of the soldiers who was helping to nail him, one of the soldiers who had participated throughout that day and who for probably the whole time has thought, look at this condemned man, looks up and says, truly, this man was the son of God. Miracle of miracles. His eyes are opened. No more faulty sight, but perfect vision. Friends, the message that this story of David tells is the story of the whole Bible. Our story is that left to ourselves, we make, we choose wrong saviors. We are constantly looking at things that can help us, things that can fight our battles for us, and we make the wrong choice. But this Jesus, in his mercy, God sent Jesus as the one who is the chosen king. The one who takes upon himself the punishment that was due to you and to me because of our sin. When he dies on the cross, it is not for his own sake, but for ours. And then God in his power does the miraculous. He opens people's eyes and he raises his king from the dead. God would not let his anointed one taste death forever. And so now the the call of the scriptures, the call of all of us here who have trusted him, is to look upon this Christ, not with the faulty sight of the world, but with the clear vision of seeing this is the chosen king, God's anointed one. And friend, if you're here with us, and you're a visitor. We're so glad you're here. We know many of you may be here and you're trusting in Christ, but if, if you have questions about this, if you're unsure, trying to see if it's this the one that I've been looking for, we'd love to sit and talk with you. We believe this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'd be happy to talk with you after service. You can find me down here. You can find any of our elders. If you came here with a friend who is a Christian, they'd be, they would love to talk to you after church about what it means to follow and trust this Christ. We'll close with, with this. Everyone here, everyone who has ever lived has a king. You, you have someone that you are looking for to fight your battles, to bring you peace, to give hope in meaningless times, to make you think there's something bigger and better than just what's going on right here. And left to ourselves, oftentimes the king or queen that we find is the one that's looking back in the mirror. We say, my kingdom, my sight, my intuition. And even if we follow and go looking elsewhere, we know 
based on scripture, and I, I think if you test this long enough, you will see all of those faulty saviors will let you down. But God in his mercy can open our eyes to see with clarity. See that this is his king. This Jesus. Great David's greater son. Brothers and sisters, if that is you, praise the Lord. Give thanks to God even today that you have seen this king and continue to walk with him set before your sight. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made the one who we esteemed stricken and smitten, the one who we thought has no beauty, nothing to make him, his appearance before us, one that we would choose. Thank you for making him your chosen, anointed son, your king and ours. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see that clearly, even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.